Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on The Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, Venture, as I come to you this weekend, I'm going to do something I don't do very often, called an audible today. Um, We were scheduled to launch the new series, Letters from Jesus. And I'm really excited about the series, done a lot of work on it. But in light of the events in our country this week, the last few days, it has been so disheartening. And especially as I've seen the response in so many different ways, that this morning as I got up and I I was doing my own quiet time, I just felt like God was telling me that we needed to do an audible and speak directly to what's going on. Now, when I say that, let let me be clear. Uh, This isn't a political message. I'm not going to try to discern the events and how you should discern each of them. Uh, There's experts who, who have far more authority on that than I do. I just believe that there's truth in the Bible. There's things that need to be said specifically to Christians. It's been interesting, the Christian response to all this, and and all the things that you see out there. And so this is a message, maybe you're watching this and you're not a follower of Christ, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I think there's some truth in this that'll be encouraging to you. But if you are a Christian, and specifically if you're part of Venture Church, I think there's some truths that we need to talk about, that we need to hold on to, that we need to model during these times. And it's pretty straightforward Um, in this. I just want to give you five admonitions, five encouragements. And and I'll just let you know, these are things I'm holding on to too. So this isn't a message just for you. This is for me. This is for my home and specifically for our church. And, And so in light of all that we've seen, what would I say at the beginning? And I take this straight out of scripture, the number one command in scripture, fear not because God is with us. I think if I could say anything else, if there's been any emotion that feels like it's dominating both the news cycle and social media and everything, it's just this overwhelming sense of fear. And it's interesting to me, the number one command, the most repeated command in the Bible is fear not. Do not be afraid. Now, why do you think God said it so much? Out of all the things he commanded us, why would he repeat that command in so many different times and places and ways throughout the Bible? Because he knows us. He knows our propensity to fear. He knows what's going on in the world. And throughout history, he knows his people have faced very difficult circumstances. And so he commands us, it's it's a literal imperative, fear not. He he also knows that fear has a way of changing us. And I think that's one of the reasons I want to lead with this, is sometimes out of fear, you know what goes hand in hand with fear? Anger. People lashing out. When we get really afraid, we can often justify our actions and the way that we lash out at others. Max Lucado puts it so well in his book, Fearless. Listen to his words. He says, fear turns us into control freaks 
For fear at its center is a perceived loss of control. When life spins wildly, we grab for a component of life we can manage, our diet, the tidiness of our home, the armrest of a plane, or in many cases, people. The more insecure we feel, the meaner we become. We growl and bare our fangs. Why? Because we're bad? In part, but also because we feel cornered. And then he gives this historical example of Martin Niemöller. Martin Niemöller was a German pastor who took a heroic stand against Adolf Hitler. When he first met the dictator in 1933, Niemöller stood at the back of the room and he listened as Hitler was speaking. Later, when his wife asked him what he'd learned, he said, I discover, discovered that Herr Hitler is a terribly frightened man. Fear releases the tyrant within. See, over and over in Scripture, God commands us, fear not. Fear not. Don't let fear change you. Don't let fear justify actions. Don't let fear lead to other emotions. And, and if you look at it, it's in all different circumstances that he calls his people to this. Sometimes they were facing much harder circumstances than we face. You know, I remember at the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of Moses' life, if you remember, Moses had led the people for 40 years. And right when they're about to go into the land of promise, Moses is not going to go with them. And at the very end of Deuteronomy, he's given his last speech to them. And can you imagine this people, they're scared, first of all, because they're going into a new land. There were giants in the land. There were armies in the land. And the leader that they've depended on for 40 years is not going. Look at Moses' words to him in Deuteronomy 31. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. He's talking about the enemies. And, and look why. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. you know, one chapter later, Joshua, the new leader, who's leading them into the land, finds himself afraid. Look what God says to Joshua in Joshua 1. He says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. Don't let these circumstances discourage you in your fear. Again, why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I love the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Guys, this is the consistent theme of this command throughout Scripture. When, when God speaks this command and says, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, fear not, he never says it because the world is so simple and there's nothing to be afraid of. He knows full well what they were facing. He never says it because he thinks we're so strong. Oh, don't be afraid. You can do it. You'll never see that command. Here's what you'll see over and over again. Fear not because I'm with you. Fear not, because I'll never leave you. Fear not, because if God's on our side, who can we fear? 
Is there any event in the world that is not under God's control? Is there anything that happens? Is there any enemy? Is there any circumstance that we would look at and go, that's greater than God? Absolutely not. And so we have a choice in that moment, and it really does come down to faith. Because you have weeks like this, and you have events like this, and our propensity is to get afraid. And in that moment, here's what I'm calling you and me to do. Let's take God at his word. Let's believe he's actually with us. And like the psalmist, we say the words, if God is for us, who can stand against us? What do we have to be afraid of? And I would encourage you, you know, I've said this often during this pandemic, but part of it is what you're taking in. What are you feeding in your life? Do you feed your faith or do you feed your fear? Are you taking in truth? Are you taking in God's word? Are you using this opportunity to focus on what he said about himself, what he's done in history? Or do you find yourself constantly taking in bad news and more social media and and so many things that ultimately only feed your fear instead of your faith? You know, this last week as a church, we launched a reading program. We're reading through the New Testament together this year. And, and it's about a chapter a day. Some days it's not even a chapter. So there's plenty of time to catch up or to jump in with us. And I got to tell you, it has been so helpful for me this week, just as we're reading through these chapters in Matthew, to, to see Jesus, to see his parents step out by faith in a fearful circumstance when he was born. To see Jesus when he's tempted by Satan and he's able to stand up to him with God's word and God's strength. To to see him describe his kingdom and what really matters. I'm just telling you, for me, just having that time every day to feed my faith instead of feeding my fear makes all the difference. As I say that, here's another thing that stands out in his word we got to remember we have a king and we're citizens of his kingdom. We have a king and we are citizens of his kingdom. And I think this has been lost. I think whether it's the election, whether it's all that's gone on, whether it's all the tension with all the division in our country, and, and I'm not speaking to any one party. I'm talking about all of us in that. I think we get so caught up that we more identify with our country than we do with our king. We find more security in our government here than we do in his kingdom there. And his kingdom come. And I love how Paul puts it in Philippians 3. He says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I would just challenge you and me, that doesn't diminish a love for our country wherever you're from, whatever country you're from. It doesn't diminish our desire to be salt and light, to be those who work for the benefit of our city and for our country and for our world. It doesn't diminish that at all. But at the core of our security, the core of our identity, the core of our kingdom is based on the fact that we have a king. And his name is Jesus. And his kingdom is eternal. See, I think it's so easy to lose sight of this. You know, I was reading the words of of Charles Colson. 
And Colson was a key part of the, you know, one of the last times that we had a key presidential crisis, Watergate. Colson was one of Richard Nixon's right-hand men. He, he was one of the designers of the whole Watergate break-in. He's one of the only ones that went to prison over it. And, and he was a political animal. He, he was the hatchet man. He would do whatever it took to get the job done. And yet in prison, he met Jesus Christ, became a Christian, became this unbelievable leader and advocate. In fact, he went on to start a ministry called Prison Fellowship because he wanted to bring hope to prisoners all around the world. Listen to Colson as he talks about this. And he said this several years ago. He said, many Christians, like most of the populace, believe the political structures can cure all of our ills. The fact is, however, that government by its very nature is limited in what it can accomplish. What it does best is perpetuate its own power and bolster its own bureaucracies. This is a guy that was fully immersed in it and, and worked within the halls of power. But he says, we, we fall into this illusion thinking government is going to cure all of the ills. Guys, we have a king and he sits on a throne. And I think maybe part of the reason as Christians we get so caught up in the current events, I, as I've thought about it, I think we, we have a, a gospel that is so limited. We don't teach the full gospel often. When I'm talking about the gospel, I'm talking about what Jesus accomplished. We often tell people he died on the cross, which he did. We often tell people he rose from the dead, which he did. But we stop there. Do you realize there's more to the gospel? He died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven and he sits on the throne. And if you read in the book of Revelation, John has this vision of the throne room. And he says it's unbelievable place. And you look all around and the streets are paved with gold and the gold in the walls and, and the floor is made out of diamonds and sapphires and jewels. And there's all these angels and these creatures and there's 24 elders who represent the leaders. And, and there's four creatures, these different creatures with different bodies in it. They have wings all over them. And he describes these creatures who are around Jesus's throne. Look how he describes it in Revelation 4. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Guys, that's going on right now. Right now, our king sits on the throne. Right now, he's being worshiped all the time. Right now, they're bowing down before him. Right now, they're declaring that everything in all human history is under his authority. It is for his glory. Sometimes I just think as Christians, 
If we just had a bigger picture of his kingdom, of even his throne, and of who he is, we wouldn't be so prone to identify with countries or kingdoms here. As great as they are, as wonderful as it can be, and I say that as somebody, I'm so glad to be born in America. I'm glad for the blessings here. But it doesn't compare with where my citizenship is. It doesn't compare with that kingdom. And and I love how Hebrews puts it, because it makes a promise to us. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, and look how he describes Jesus' kingdom, that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Isn't that a great phrase? We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Literally, nothing shakes it. Nothing rattles it. Nothing moves it. Man, I I love that line because we realize how quickly our country can be shaken. We realize how quickly our government can be shaken. Things that we thought were so strong and secure in it. We realize how quickly our companies can be shaken. Our homes, our lives. We're a lot more fragile than we like to admit. That's why I love to come to this line. And Hebrews promises us, you know, when you're in Jesus' kingdom, nothing shakes it. Give it your best shot. There's no world event. There's no authority. There's no power. There's nothing that shakes his kingdom. And that's our kingdom. And we can rest in that truth. And we can live in that truth. And and as a result of it, it shows us how to live here. Because we're citizens there, we have direct responsibility in how we're supposed to live in these countries. And, And look how it puts it in Scripture. It's just the command, live in a prayerful submission to the governing authorities. Live in prayerful submission to your governing authorities. Look how Paul puts it in Romans 13.1. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. In this passage, he'll go on to describe, he says, each of those authorities They have a ministry. They've been instituted by God to bring peace, to bring justice to the world. And ultimately, the leaders of those countries, the leaders of those authorities, those governing authorities, they will answer to God for it. So he looks at us and he says, here's what you're responsible to do. You submit to the authorities God's placed over you. you. You submit where you are. And notice, he's writing this for all time. He's not saying you submit if it's this kind of government or if it's this person or that structure with that. He's just saying God has, under his kingdom, given different authorities, and they administer it in different ways. And and hear me, some of those forms of government, I think, are so much better than other ones. But that doesn't change our response. He says you submit to them. Now, Now, certainly you don't submit where they're violating God's law. Paul had to stand up to it. Ultimately, he lost his life because the governing authorities. And so he's not giving them a blank check to do whatever they want. But he is calling us as believers 
that we submit in that. And the reason we do that, look at what Colossians 1 says. For in him, it's talking about Christ, all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. See, all things, all these thrones, all these powers, rulers, authorities, and he's not just talking about physical ones on this planet. He's talking about spiritual powers. All of it falls under his authority. All of it created by him and for him. That Jesus is ruling even in events that he would not call good events, but he's still in control. The question is, do we believe that? Do, do we believe and trust enough that we'll do what Paul calls us to do? Here's our response to it in Second, 1 Timothy 2. First of all, he says, I urge that supplication, prayer, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Pray for everybody. And then he says specifically for kings and those who are in high positions. Why do we pray this way? That we may lead, and I love this line, and I think we long for it more, we may lead peaceful and quiet lives. That we want peace. We want quiet lives. That we could live godly lives. And look at this, dignified in every way. That as believers, we pray for our leaders. We pray for all people. We pray specifically for those in authority so that we can live, live peaceful lives. So that we can live out the godliness that God's called us to. That we could live as those who are dignified. And I think to do this, we've got to be people of prayer. I think we also have to be people, and you see it in the next point, who speak the truth in love. I think specifically there is a call to Christians to be those who speak the truth, but we do it in love. Ephesians 4, Paul writes, Rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ. He says this is what maturity looks like for a Christian. One of the marks of it is you speak the truth in love. And as you think about the two sides of it, I, I just encourage us right now, are we people of truth? Are we people that when we speak, when we email, when we forward a story, when we send out a tweet, when we hear something, and here's what I would challenge you, you hear this story and then we quickly spread it. Do we stop in that moment and ask ourselves, do I know this is true? Do I know for a fact this is true? I mean, it's amazing how much rumor can spread today and how much the, even the news cycle can feed off of rumor. You know, I was reading a few years ago, there was a, a stories of abductions in Baltimore. And the mayor of Baltimore even stood up and they were talking about it and questioning. And he said, yeah, and if you see a white van, do not park near a white van, report a white van because they've been part of the abductions. And somebody asked the mayor, they, they were like, do you have police and intelligence on that? And, and he said, no, actually, I read it on Facebook. And the rumor was going out, all throughout. Finally, the police had to come forward and they go, look, we, we have no evidence white vans have been a part of this at all. In fact, there were so many people that were spreading this. It was, if you saw a white van and had external lock on the van, 
all of these tradesmen started coming forward, they were being harassed. A lot of people that worked on construction sites, they had white vans and they often would put external locks because they had expensive equipment on it. It's just one rumor that kind of filtered through to the point that the police spokesman said, hey, if you see anybody suspicious, white van or not, don't post it. Call us. Call us so we can verify. Guys, I, I just give that example because we live in this age where there's so much information. And I think even as Christians, we are so quick to forward an email. We're so quick to send on a story. We're so quick to to spread so that everyone needs to know. And I think there's a place to pause right now. And before you say anything, before you send anything, before you spread anything, if you stop for a moment and ask yourself, do I know for a fact this is true? Do I want to stand on the fact this is true? Because Christians, we have been called by God that maturity in Christ means we always speak the truth. That, that people would know, oh, did a Christian say that? Well, then I know it would be true. Because that's what their God's called them to. That's what their king tells them to do. They're citizens of that kingdom, and they answer to him more than anyone else. Do we speak the truth? And then the second part of that is, maybe it's true, but are you speaking it in love? Because it's easy to weaponize truth. It's easy to use truth in a way that you want to hurt other people with it, that you want to damage with it. And again, Paul says, maturity in Christ, maturity in this age, you're not just a person who speaks the truth, but you do it in love because you love the people you're speaking to, because you love the people of this world the same way God loves people. And guys, it makes all the difference in how you share it. You know, Clark Cothern tells a story of a a couple he knew, Ed Waltz and his wife, Barb. And, and Ed puts it this way. He says, you know, the tone of our truth-telling, you can either build a wall or you can build a bridge. And he, he told from their own personal experience. They, their daughter, Deb, had cerebral palsy. And, and as they took her to doctors, and they remember one experience with two different doctors, they met with one doctor and he came in and they'd run a bunch of clinical tests. And, and just as they were going through it, he said, just real clear, he's very cold in his delivery. But he just said, well, your daughter will never walk again. And Barb was taken aback. And, and, and she asked him, she said, well, is there something we could do? Are there some shoes that we could buy her? And she thought maybe shoes with braces or, or something. And he looked at her and kind of shook his head and he said, ma'am, you can buy her any kind of shoes you want. She'll never walk in them. And with that, he walked out. She broke down in tears. They went to another doctor for a second opinion. They ran the test. And, and as Ed describes it, as we went through it, we basically got the same information from him. We basically got the same bad report but it was so different in tone. And as the second doctor went through the diagnosis, Barb asked him, she said, is there something we could do? Are there some shoes that we would buy her? What would you suggest? 
And the second doctor stopped. And he thought about it for a minute. And then he looked her right in the eye. And lovingly and compassionately, he said, you know what I would do if she was my daughter? I'd go out and buy her the prettiest pink shoes I could find. And I'd probably put purple shoelaces in it to make it look really good. It was the same diagnosis. She wasn't going to walk. But what a difference in the way that it was told. Let me ask you right now. When you tell truth, are you building bridges to people? Or are you building walls? You, you can use the same brick of truth, but it has a far different effect. And I think there was ever a time for Christians right now to be people who spoke the truth in love. We don't weaponize truth. We, we don't spread innuendo. We don't spread rumor. We're people who guard our words. And when we speak truth, we do it out of love. Final principle I just would call you to is could we be people of the light? In a world that's gotten so dark, could we make a commitment together? We're going to be people of the light. You know, we just finished a whole Christmas series where we talked about Jesus being the light of the world. And the key verse of that series came out of John chapter 1. If you look in it, in John 1, it says, The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And I, I preached on it, and we've talked about the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. And because he's the light of the world, it doesn't matter how dark it gets, it can't overcome the darkness can't overcome the light of who Jesus is. And, and I would encourage you, hold on to that truth. Live that truth. But you know, Jesus calls us to even a further step. He says, you be that truth. Because I'm in you and you're in the world. Look what he tells his followers in Matthew 5. He says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand. And look at this line. It gives light to all in the house. It gives light to everybody, not just the select few, not just your tribe, not just your people. He says, you're the light to everybody. And he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. He says, let them see your light. Let them see who he is. Let them see through you what he's like. And guys, if there was ever a time right now that people need light and they need people of light, <laughs> it's in the circumstances we're living in. And, and we may look at the darkness and go, oh man, it's getting so dark and it scares us. But you know, I look at it and I go, what a great opportunity. Because light stands out the most when it gets really dark. And I think there may be a season and I think there may be a time. And I think God's placed in front of his church in this country, in this time, an opportunity to be light like never before. But we have to make a choice in it. We have to choose 
to be the light that Christ is in us. You know, as I close, let me give you two stories of what this looks like. One from a couple of thousand years ago, one from a few years ago. The first one goes back to the city of Philippi. Two guys named Paul and Silas. And in that city, there was a riot. There was an outbreak. There was violence. And Paul and Silas were blamed. And if you read through the story, there's so much of it that I think we could relate to. You have governing authorities who don't use their authority right. You have a miscarriage of justice. You have people that are acting out in it. At the end of it, Paul and Silas, they strip off their clothes. They beat them. They throw them into prison unjustly. And, and as you read in Acts 16, that's where you find them, in prison. And, and as I look at it, if there was ever two guys who had a right to complain, if there was ever two guys who had a right to be angry, if there was ever two guys who could sit there and stew and go, this is a miscarriage of justice, everything about this is wrong. If there was ever anyone who had the right to go, this is wrong, and stand up for themselves, it's those two guys. But look at them in prison. Look what it says in Acts 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I mean, look at their response. They've had a miscarriage of justice, and Paul will stand up for his rights, and Paul will tell the authorities. You read on in the chapter, he tells the authorities this was wrong. So he's not whitewashing what's been done. But in the moment, instead of grinding about it, instead of complaining about it, they choose to sing and to praise God because they knew who was on the throne. And notice as well, and the prisoners were listening to them. So everybody else in the prison is paying attention. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and every bond was unfastened. There's an earthquake and the doors open up. And you might look at it and you go, okay, yeah, God's intervening. This was wrong. They shouldn't be there. And so he's shaking the place open. And when it happens, notice in the next verses, it says, the jailer woke and he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and he was about to kill himself. Because back in that time, if you were a jailer and the people got out, you were executed. So he says, I'm going to go ahead and kill myself now. And supposing that the prisoners had escaped, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we're all here. Not just Paul and Silas, all the prisoners. Look at this last verse in this. And the jailer called for lights and he rushed in trembling with fear and he fell down before Paul and Silas. Look at his response. Then he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Man, it's a dramatic story. But I'll tell you, for me, the most dramatic part is not the earthquake and the doors opening. The most dramatic part is two guys in a bad circumstance who got a raw deal. And instead of choosing to act out, they choose to praise God. Instead of choosing to run away, they choose to stay. And they bring such light to such a dark place that even the jailer looks at him and he says, 
man, I want what you have. What do I need to do to be saved? And not only did he get saved, his family got saved. A church was formed there in Philippi. In fact, when you're reading through the New Testament, read the book of Philippians sometime. It's one of the most joyful books in all the Bible. And it started because two guys chose to be light in the darkness. That was 2,000 years ago. Let me close with the story of just a few years ago of a pastor named Ghassan Thomas who after the fall in Baghdad, he opened up a church, one of the first openly Christian churches in Baghdad. And, and out in front of his church, he hung a sign, Jesus is the light of the world. And that night, the church was ransacked. And, and on a cardboard sign, these words were written. It was left there. And it said on the sign, Jesus is not the light of the world. Allah is. And you've been warned. And then it was signed, the Islamic Shiite party. So what did Pastor Ghassan do? It's a scary situation. He could have been afraid. Could have chosen to react in anger. He took his van. He loaded it up with children's toys and clothing and medical supplies, which were in short supply in that time. And he drove across town over to the Islamic Shiite center, walked in and gave them the gifts, met with the sheik, and he said, can I read you one verse? And he opened the Bible to John 8, and he said, look what Jesus said here. He said he's the light of the world. And that's all that we're proclaiming because we believe that to be true. And the sheik looked at him and apologized. And then he made a declaration. He said, anybody else that messes with him, you got to come through me first. In fact, when Pastor Ghassan was ordained later that year, the sheik himself came to the ceremony. See, God used him in a desperate place, in a desperate time, to be the light of the world. Guys, I, I can't promise you what's going to happen in our country. In fact, even from the time that I record this and you see this, events may have changed. But I can promise you this, everything I've called you to today, it's what God calls us to. It's what we're called to live out. And so as we close out, I, I want to do something a little different. I'm going to ask you, wherever you're watching this, would you take a moment and just bow? Just bow your heads right where you are because I want you to reflect for just a minute. And as you're bowing there, I want you to think about that command, do not be afraid, fear not, for God is with you. And if you're afraid of something right now, would you tell him? Would you ask him to help you with your fear? I want you to take a moment right now and picture the fact that he is the king and he's on his throne. And just in your mind, picture Jesus on his throne. Think about how powerful he is. 
Think about those angels worshiping him day and night. And declare allegiance that you're a citizen of his kingdom. Would you take a moment now and ask God to give you a heart of submission for the authorities over you, for those he's put in place? And make a commitment that you'll pray for them. As we think about being people who speak the truth in love, would you make a commitment to God right now that that would mark your life? That you will be a person committed to truth and speaking only truth but that you do it in love. Finally, I would ask that you would remember that he is the light of the world. Picture that light in your life and ask him to shine that light through you no matter what you face right now. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that you are on your throne and it is unshakable. I pray we would rest in that today. I pray we would live this today. I pray that you would use this time for your church to be a light like never before. I pray that for my life. I pray that for my home. I pray that for Venture Christian Church. Would the light shine bright. So much so that people like that, that jailer would come to us and go, tell me how to be saved. Tell me how to be a part of that kingdom. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.